the Calvinist, the good one anyway, there's a good one and there's a bad one, Aaron, and you should listen to the good one and not the bad one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, a good Calvinist, I think, is willing to say that all of this election and atonement stuff, it's really ultimately rooted in God's character, and we don't know anything else beyond that. Mm. And and I think with Arminianism, what it tries to do, because I think it, it's got this knee-jerk anxiety about the problem of evil, um, it, it tries to over-explain, and then it gets itself in trouble. Welcome to Late Night Theology. Today, we're going to be talking about limited atonement. And I say today, but we're probably, this is going to be a, a longer conversation because the L is a very long L. It's a capital L, and it's going to take a little while for us to get through it. I'm Aaron. That's Jonathan. And today, Hello. we're going to talk about theology, specifically the L of TULIP, which stands mm. for limited atonement, which is probably the biggest sticking point and why you find so many so-called four-point Calvinists, which we still love them, with you know, but they most this were, this is them. usually the sticking point. I mean, for me, um, for me, like in my personal uh, journey to 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 Calvinism, the cage states cage states progress, so to speak. Today, let's so let's 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 recap a little bit, Jonathan. Sure. Why is Calvinism so weird? Uh, well, I I. The real question is why are Calvinists so weird? But we are. I, I'm not. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. We can't really. Have, we, we can't really escape oh. that. We we are, we are a screwy bunch. You know, we we like to point fingers at Pentecostals, but good lord, from the hipster beards to the Bible flasks, it it it's weird, man. It, Wait, there, it's a whole. There's Bible flasks. No, but I suspect there will be. Give it time, Aaron. I think the, I think the big issue is that at, at the end of the day, Calvinism has doctrines that make absolutely no sense to us in our natural state of being, especially here in America. True. This idea of total depravity. I mean, yeah, we kind of see it, but that's everybody else. I'm fine. Everybody else is the screwed up. People. Everybody. Everybody stops the line between good and evil at themselves. Absolutely. Unconditional election. Yeah. You mean to tell me that I don't get a choice? How dare you, sir? Who comes up with this craziness? Let's speak to the manager. I should choose. <laughs> Can I speak to your man? I want. I want to file a complaint. My election was not approved here. <laughs> it, it's just tough. I think it's tough for people to look at this. Even just those first two, which we've already covered. I mean, for the most part, like people, people can kind of see total depravity just because if you have seen the world, you have seen depravity. There's yeah. just no two ways about that. And so you can kind of like if you follow total depravity and, and if you see I like how uh, R.C. Sproul used to put it as uh, radical depravity. It just it's it's not that we are as bad as we could be. But because of common grace, but it's it it is so radical. It's into every bit of our being. I like that. That's good. That's and really good. so and so from that, you can see that the you can you can make the logical leap from from total depravity to unconditional yeah. election. And to be fair, if you if you're listening and you're in your what we call the Arminian camp, which we which we hi, we about, love you. 
Yeah, in earlier podcasts, we discussed this. Uh, <laughs> even you guys, and you, you have to admit this, there is a doctrine of election. You might not want to talk about it. You know, you kind of shuffle it off to the side. But you guys do have a doctrine of election. So you can't get away from it. The issue is, what does it look like and how does it play out, especially when it comes to the atonement, hmm. which is what we're talking about tonight. And that's where, like, we can, and like I said before, like, we can, there are so many four-point Calvinists, like, this This is mm -hmm. the sticking point, because people can, people can grasp that there is, uh, we're totally depraved. We, they can, sure. they can actually see, because of people other than Calvinists, believe it or not, understand grace, they, they see that it's, it's through nothing that they've done. And, well, and they can, they can, but it's, and then they can even see like, you know, the, the, the concept of irresistible grace that when God calls someone, they have to come. And then, you know, the, whatever the P is, it's late. Um, what is that? Perseverance. Perseverance. Jeez and crackers. Well, I that. that right out of my back pocket. <laughs> Perseverance. <laughs> like, and they can see that because, but it's. It's when you start to get into this concept of limited atonement. Yeah, we're side, not big on limited stuff. No, no, we we want unlimited. We we like we like the unconditional election. Unlimited data, do, but, un, but limited unlimited atonement. nachos, unlimited beer. I mean, we live in an unlimited world. I, this this doctrine especially just pushes right back on a lot of our modern modern sensibilities. It does, and and I think through this. What happens with a lot of reform folks or reform leaning folks is that it also bleeds into election. This this doctrine, limited atonement and election, are, are closely intertwined, and I think it. This is where you get the four point three point Calvinists, but I think a lot of that may be due to a lack of understanding. I know it was for me when I was coming to these conclusions. Um, well, it, it kind of jumps out at you it. when you when it's like <laughs> limited limited atonement. No, it's. I feel like the the acrostic can take away some of the the weight of what you're actually seeing, and there, it, the yeah. the the initial uh, the, the initial reaction can be one of like, oh, hey, whoa, 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 what's up? But when you like actually explain it out, it makes a little bit more sense. And limited atonement, really, I, the the way I have I put it here, it, it's like the scythe of the specter of Calvinism for a lot of American Christians. I don't like the term limited atonement i don't think it's helpful i don't no. think it works right you know it, it, or what are we talking about are we talking about limited power is god not able to atone for some people is it a limited time frame he, he could atone for you during this time but not a, you know mondays through fridays eight to five you're good yeah. but after that you know or location you know for a lot of the early early jews they would have understood the messiah's work as being only for them right right or, or their specific area. The idea that it was going to go out over the whole world was foreign to them. Mm. And I think scope, you know, like I just, which is tied to that. You know, who's this for? Where's it going? How do we understand this? Limited does not tell you any of that. It just throws it out there and it kind of expects you to know. Particular atonement is, in my opinion, a better phrase because it starts to, you know, peel away of what we're talking about. But it has problems. Oh, yeah. And I think I think even particular. If if you give, uh, uh, I think particular is something that um, 
more Arminians could come would would be able like when you say limit it's just like you said like limited gives this idea of uh, as if the the gospel is not given to everyone uh, right. you or know, there's it's, a lack of power or, right. or something where so I think I think you're I think you're right that particular comes across it's much more helpful it's a much more helpful term yeah it, it gets to the idea that that this discussion, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, we're ultimately talking about the scope of the application of the atonement, right? We're talking about what was actually done on the cross. And, and to give people sort of a good good illustration of this, if you go back and read in Exodus about the Passover, the first Passover, where the angel of death comes down into Egypt and, and does his work, um, if you read those sections carefully, it's really interesting. There, there was darkness that was reserved only for the Egyptians, and, and the angel came in after that. And the way it's worded is that if you don't have the blood over your doorway, Egyptian or Hebrew, you're, you're toast. And as far as we can tell, the Egyptians weren't given the chance for these instructions. Like, the, it was only the Israelites at this point were given the instruction to, hey— Put the blood over your door. And, That's true. You know, you know where, where is, where is the love of God in the <laughs> destruction of the Egyptians? Yeah, and this is really the the root of the issue, as we'll see in a little bit later in this podcast, and then part two. This is the sticking point. People want to think of God as as all loving. Is the phrase that I hear, which. It's funny because that's not what the Bible says, but they can't get over, and I couldn't get over personally. A lot of people can't. This idea that somehow God doesn't do things equally for all people. That idea is is foreign to us because we live in a, you know, Western enlightened society that right. is all about equality and now equity and all the rest. So when so what we what we should probably do is establish what the doctrine actually says, at least coming out of the Reformation. And this this again, Tulip as a whole and these doctrines of Calvinism were the big issue surrounding the sixteen ten Canons of Dort. And in the Canons of Dort, in the second main point of doctrine, Article eight, for those of you who are following along. <clears throat> this is a long one, so bear with me. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. There's more, but that really captures it. Salvation. There's, there's security in that. I would I would think so. But I would think an Arminian could read that, at least on the surface, and go, yeah, of course. Right. The devil's in the details, as we know. Right? <laughs> it's always in the details. If you read the rest of that particular article, you'll find that it's really just describing something very simple and, and very old mm. that was used to be called the substitutionary or vicarious penal atonement. There's been different theories about the atonement in theology, but this is the one that people 
have consistently come back to in the church and said, this, this is it. Mm. Um, substitution, meaning Christ died in the place of an actual individual or individuals, right? Um, in this case, according to the canons of Dort, his covenant people, which makes sense given the whole, you know, whatever scripture, the mm. whole tone of scripture. It's penal in the fact that it's an actual legal transaction. Something actually happened on the cross. It wasn't just like this great idea of, hey, I'm going to die, and then maybe that'll do something. It wasn't It wasn't like a moral example. Like, uh, right. I think it's, was it Christus, Christus Victus, Victor? Christus, Christus, Christus Victus. It's a Latin phrase. There's a yeah. Latin phrase where, where it's basically, it's like, theory. hey, Christ is victorious, you know, over. Uh, right. If you ever, if you ever want to deep dive into this, um, actually, I'm going to say this after you're done explaining all these things. I was just going to say atonement, <laughs> atonement, uh, the actual remission of our sins and reconciliation to God. Our sin, our guilt, our condemnation is actually removed. So the whole phrase, penal substitutionary atonement is the crux of this entire issue. We either agree with that idea or we don't. Hmm. And if we don't, where does that leave us? And I guess that would be my question for our Arminian friends is that, yeah, there's, there's difficulties with limited atonement. I'll be the first to say it. There's some tough passages, but I don't know if Arminianism solves those problems. If anything, I think it might make it worse. I think it, we'll it ends up it ends up being a a front loaded or back uh, back loaded issue. Whereas most Arminianism, you have the 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 problem of well, why doesn't God save everyone on the back end? There's right. this there's this there's the offer, and uh, everybody who hears this can make their own decision. On whether or not, and then you still have to deal with the problem of why doesn't God save everyone? Whereas in uh, in limited atonement, you have that question straight up front, and you have all the difficult bits up front, and then <laughs> you know it's it's more of a We're slide. We're just suckers for punishment. <laughs> it's true. And as a as a side note, if you want to get more into the uh, the concept of the penal substitutionary atonement, there is an excellent uh, documentary called uh, it's actually American Gospel. Uh, Christ crucified and it it goes into the whole concept of this and and the other concepts attached to it as well as some opposing views they 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 have a very it's a very uh well-orbed uh view of things so if you ever want to if you want to we're we're not going to get I don't, I don't know if we're going to get too much into the weeds but if you want to watch like no. an hour and a half to 2 hours of people getting into the weeds that's the way to do it so let's look at the historical context of this because like this, uh, this is coming from. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously, we believe that the doctrines of grace actually come from the Bible, but uh, this the this specific reformed outlook on it uh, mm. tends to come from the canons of Dort, which you you were just reading from. That was around the sixteen hundreds, sixteen ten, Netherlands. Um, it was a dark and stormy. No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. The Protestant Reformation kicks off. Martin Luther, early 1500s, does his thing in Wittenberg. And then John Calvin in the 1530s starts writing his institutes and publishes the first draft in 1536. Um, and that he, he's writing from 
Switzerland, Geneva. And Geneva, among some other other cities in Europe, like Strasbourg uh, and Zurich, become centers of Reformation thought. There's major thinkers there that are writing, um, and they have the freedom to write because of the governments there giving them asylum, essentially. And a lot of that teaching filters out to other countries where they're not welcome, like the Netherlands, which at this time was controlled by the uh, Spanish Empire, which... For those of you who don't know, is fairly Catholic. A little bit, <laughs> just a touch it, Catholic. You know, just a little bit. Um, but but it has a g- tremendous impact on the churches there, and they become what what are collectively known as re- Dutch Reformed churches. There's still uh, denominations in that vein today: uh, the Christian Reformed Church in North America and the Reformed Church of America. I think yep. that's right. Yeah, they're here in America, um, and. Uh, yeah, anyway, they're around. They're kind of the cousins to the Presbyterians, if you want to think of it that way. And uh, a controversy arose in these Reformed churches in the Netherlands, led by a guy named Jacob Arminius. Go figure, right? No, like, legitimate question here. Did Arminius, like, was Arminius out of, because um, I know that uh, we saw a lot of, our, like, uh, Arminian theology come out mm. of um, Melanchthon after after. He, after Luther died, Melanchthon's sure. followers kind of went into this. Like, is this is this an offshoot of that? Like, this, so this would have been what fifty some odd years uh, after yeah. Luther. My well, my reading of Melanchthon is that he's more trying to find common cause with the Romans. Okay. Um, I don't know of any of any communication between him and what became known as the Arminian remonstrance. So if you're Arminian, you can go to all the cool parties and say, Hey, I'm a remonstrant. Honestly, I wish that had stuck rather than Arminian. (laughs) It's really, it's a, that's a, that is a solid name. The remonstrances. Um, but, but there's similarities here because there's a move amongst the remonstrants to make sure that the balance between God's responsibility and man's responsibility is being preserved, which is which is noble, right? Um, they're concerned that you know you can go so far down this road of Calvinism where you become a fatalist and you just don't do anything um, because God's got it all under control. You don't have to participate. So I think, in a positive vein, they're looking at this, going, mm, "Let's not let's not do that. Right. Let's ask some questions right. here." But they kind of go too far in some ways. So initially. They're they're basically just asking questions. So, for example, I I believe this art this particular uh, article came out in 1610 before the canons of Dort were formed, and it says this that agreeably thereto, very fancy language, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man, so that He has obtained for them all by His death on the cross redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Yet that no one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer, according to the word of the gospel of John 3.16. And in the first epistle of John 2, verse 2. So And that's basically it. They just kind of throw that out there and they're like, hey, this seems to be what it says in these passages. How can we say that, God on, that Jesus only died for specific people? Show us, I think, is, is their attitude. And for good or for ill... The Dutch Reformed folks responded with the Canons of Dort, uh, 
which are fairly polemical if you read them mm. and come down hard and they're like no this is not this is not it because if you, you look at if you uh, if we look at this uh was this is article two of the armenian remonstrances mm. it, you end up almost with a kind of a soft universalism because uh, if if yeah. if christ died for everyone and and has it even says and obtained for them all redemption and forgiveness of sins i don't think god is and again this is another rc sprawlism i don't think god is you know sitting in heaven wringing his hands like is somebody sure. are they gonna are they gonna take advantage of this great deal i've given them <laughs> not to rabbit trail too hard but i saw an evangelist a traveling evangelist posting for his revival services and he posted on Facebook, revival, our next revival will be at such and such a place at six o'clock. We hope to see you. And I remember reading that going, wow, either you're really in tune with where the Holy Spirit's going to be or there's something funky going on here. <laughs> you're scheduling God's the, revival. Right. Like that's, it's, you, you, you oh. people have taken the concept of revival and turned it into something you can you can schedule and, and ink in and be like hey holy spirit you free this day we're gonna have ourselves a revival is that cool can you show up like do you have anything else to do we so we they there was a response to this though which is how we got the canons of Dort. which it yeah. looks like this was this was eight years later so they kind of took their time thinking through this sure so i think initially the remonstrants are, are looking at some of these scriptures and going we don't get it like John three sixteen and first John two two, which says, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's clear to us. How do we understand this? I see in the initial, you know, questioning a, an effort to try to be respectful to scripture. And I think part of their concern was, are we taking these passages seriously? Right. After the canons of Dort and eight years later, the tone shifts. So let me read a little bit of this for you. It's a it's a little more uh, spicy. The this is from the 1618 Armenian rejoinder to the Canons of Dort. Oh, so the this price... is this. So I was reading this wrong. So yeah. I was thinking that this was this was the response. My bad. I was no, looking at so the, the notes can, wrong. The Canons of Dort come out roughly this in the same two year period that the Remonstrants are are talking about this and and going everywhere and they had to call a synod eight years after the the canon of dort the arminians responded with another official document and this this is what it said the price of redemption which christ offered to god the father is not only in itself and by itself sufficient for the redemption of the whole human race but has also been paid for all men and for every man according to the decree will and the grace of god the father Therefore, no one is absolutely excluded from participation in the fruits of Christ's death by an absolute and antecedent decree of God. So you can see there, they're going after specific statements in the Canons of Dorth, which say God has decreed who, who are the elect before right. the foundations of the world. They go on, Christ has, by the merit of his death, so reconciled God the Father to the whole human race that the Father... On account of that merit, notice the language there, without giving up his righteousness and truth, has been able and has willed to make and confirm a new covenant of grace with sinners and men liable to damnation. So, yeah, there's, find, 
lot of mention of merit in this, which would it, be far closer to a, a Roman Catholic understanding of it, of and uh, it's salvation a, at this point, wouldn't it be? Yeah, the whole the whole tone is a lot more specific. They're they're now trying to explain their position. If before they were asking questions, now they're like, no, this is how it works. If that makes sense. Um, this last this last line, though Christ has merited reconciliation with God and remission of sins for all men and for every man, yet no one, according to the pact of the new and gracious covenant, becomes a true partaker of the benefits obtained by the death of Christ in any other way than by faith, nor are sins forgiven to sinning men before they actually and truly believe in Christ. Pretty, pretty tough stuff there. Essentially what they're saying is, look, ye ain't saved until ye believe. So you better get to believing. Um, now there's lots of takeaways and lots of questions here, but notice how more certain and almost severe in some cases they've gone this, they've gone from a more like hey we're we're kind of checking in on this like are, are we taking this seriously to no we are absolutely serious about this yeah there gone is the is the idea that we can discuss this and work through this it's gone and and to me it, it's sort of sad because as we'll see there are scriptures on both sides of this, and frankly, some of them are not clear. And no, and you can kind the, of follow along to see where they're where they're coming from. Oh, absolutely! But it, and, it feels and, like it's missing a little bit of context. Yeah, and, and for them to lo lose that idea that we can work through this, I think it was a great loss. And I think what this did, this this, this highlights the, this final separation between Calvinists and Arminians, because this. They, they basically said, this is our position, and we're never going to change. Good luck changing it. Um, it's sad. It's sad for me because I think there's a lot more common ground than either side will admit, hmm. um, especially with classical Arminians, because I've known, known people in this camp that truly love God and are truly looking to serve him and, and love scripture, but and this happens on the reform side too, you get so entrenched in your view, you can't, you can't even ask questions anymore. Right. And to me, I don't care what camp you're part of. If you're, if you're part of a, a group or a church or whatever, where you're not allowed to ask questions, that's dangerous stuff. Right. That's dangerous when, ground. When you have blind, blind dedication to a concept or a doctrine rather than to scripture. I think right. that's where I really, it really starts to bother me. If you give a crap about your theology, and you you go through the paces and you ask the questions and and you dig deep into it and you come up with whatever you come up with, I respect that. I respect the heck out of that. Yeah, because not everybody will do that anymore. Exactly, and and what I see here is that that fading. You know, before they're quoting scripture and you get this feel like they're trying to sort through it. No, by this time, eight years later, no, this is our position. Yeah. This is the way it has to be. There can be no other explanation. And that, that whole thing gets lost. We can kind of look through. There's there's usually, we've got three scriptures or three sets of scriptures, I should say, that people sure. kind of go through. So we've got John 3.16 is one of the big ones. 
where, oh, yeah. you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, they're big on the whosoever, believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. Um, I was so scared for you because I was like, if he doesn't get this right on air, <laughs> the most famous Bible verse <laughs> of all time. Yeah, John 3.16, right there on the surface. God loves the world, everyone. That means every individual, Aaron. True. Don't, don't you... When you use the word world, don't, don't, don't you always mean every single individual that has ever lived? Right. And I think that's, again, it's um, when, when we, the, the basic concept of hermeneutics is that scripture interprets scripture. And sometimes we forget that we have to balance that out against the rest of the scripture. And another pair of verses that we see a lot is in 1 Timothy 2.4, which says, who he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we yeah. also see like through um, in, in the couple Verse verses six. later is who gave himself as a ransom for all the, the testimony given at a proper time. And then second Peter three, nine, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And uh, yeah. again, on the surface, I can see where they're coming from. You know, it Absolutely. seems like uh, it seems like that's pretty definitive. But again, if you don't look at the context carefully, uh, that can be some of the meaning can be lost. It can be real tough. I mean, John John does this all the time. So First John two two, which we've already read, but I'll read again. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, it seems clear at some level right mm. and he does this at other points in his gospel too not just in in john 3 but in john 6 i am the living bread that came down from heaven this is verse 51 if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread that i'll give for the life of the world for the life of the world is my flesh so if anyone eats of it and for the whole world right it fits it fits a narrative and then 1247, for those of you following along at home, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So we think, have this world language again. Right. And I think this is a this is another point where context is very important because you can you could glean universalism from this particular verse, especially where he says, I don't judge the people that don't keep my teachings. Because right. he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. But right. if you, you have to look at that in the proper context of the rest of the gospel. But again, Absolutely. on, you know, on their face, these, you know, these seem to be pretty cut and dry. Yeah, these are the big verses. There's more. I mean, any, any self-respecting Arminian will have a whole slew of verses. And, and rightfully so. They should be in scripture. They should be trying to understand those. Reformed people should be looking at these passages trying to understand them. This is not just a one-sided deal. That, like, Jesus loves everyone. What do you mean he only died for uh, a select few? Right. Trouble here, and we'll, we'll look at this in, a, in the part two podcast, is some of those words are not as clear as they first seem. When you use the word world, for example, it can mean a lot of different things to, depending on the context. Um, I think people assume it's clear based upon sort of a, you know, surface reading that, hey, 
obviously this means every single individual because that would be what it would mean if we wrote that. But I think that kind of ignores where these authors might might have been coming from. I think mm. it ignores other passages of scripture that we have to compare these to. But again, if you're reformed, you you have to sit down and look at these passages and, and really sort through it. This is not something that you can ignore. And for for my brothers and sisters who are Arminians, to their credit, I think there's a lot of Reformed people that would hear those passages and just, well, that just means this or just means that, and not really sit down and try to work through it. Um, that's not right. That's right. not right. If you're if you're going to take a stand on on these positions, you better be doing it out of the Word of God. And when you're faced with passages that seemingly contradict your position, you got you got to work through them, mm. just like you did all the other ones. You can't just uh, you can't push aside difficult passages just because they're difficult. Because right. honestly, the the whole of Scripture scrapes against us in one way or another. Because at the end of the day, we are sinful people looking into the – we're given a glimpse into the holy mind of God. And at some point, we are going to clash. Exactly. Exactly. And you got to be willing to let God disagree with you, as tough as that is. I know that's something (laughs) – I have to learn frequently that that God disagrees with me. Absolutely. can't imagine why that would be the case. But. No, no, you're perfect, aren't you? <laughs> well, I mean, you've been. I don't want to brag or anything. You've at least, <laughs> if you, I, I feel like sanctification is completed after one year of san, uh, seminary. So, you know, <laughs> congratulations <laughs> on being fully sanctified. Sanctified or sanatorium worthy, one or the other. I'm not sure which. <laughs> All right, just, just. I, I've had my years in seminary. You can just put me in the penitentiary. Yeah. I've gone mad. Yeah. <laughs> I've lost it. <laughs> so we can also see, like, people, and in fairness, it. I, I truly believe, I, I don't think this comes out of people, like, not wanting to read scripture. I don't think this comes, I think this comes from a truly uh, heartfelt place of, of of an evangelistic heart yeah. that says Jesus died for everyone. We need to like we need to be a, the example of being good people, and and we need to love others. And you know, I yeah. think it, it comes from a good place, but I think it's it's got some problems. It really does. <laughs> it's it, got some problems, and we'll we'll look at that. But you know, this isn't this isn't just a you know a, a Calvinist Arminian thing. A lot of people look at Christianity today and they hear stuff like this and they go, this, this doesn't make sense. Imagine you're, you're downtown New York, right? And you go up to somebody and say, hey, you know how Christians say that Jesus loves everyone? Um, I just want you to know that he just died for a specific group of people. <laughs> and I want you to tell me how that's going to go over. Right. <laughs> You know, just culturally, if the, if they hear about Jesus, at least they did, they would say, "Yeah, he loves everyone." What do, What do you mean this this idea that he died for only a specific? It it that, that doesn't of, make sense. In a way, it can uh, because we we have such a focus on the love of God 
and how he loves you where you're at. And we we kind of move away from mention of sin. Like people, it's like you said, in common culture, if you asked people what Jesus thought about them, it was right. just the fact that he loves them. Like that's, you know, right. that's a, why it takes the fangs out of the gospel because we're not, people aren't seeing themselves as sinful. They're not seeing themselves as separated from God and on their right. way to hell. They're just like, oh, wow, Jesus loves everyone. That is great. I'm going to do my thing. Uh, but that's really great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Right. I think this kind of gets slumped in sometimes with this idea that, hey, Jesus was a great guy. He died for everyone, mostly as an example. You know, we just if we're just good people and love others, he, of course, he'll accept us. Mm. Again, this is another cultural objection that makes Calvinism look really not great. How do you, how do you go about this doctrine in 21st century America? It's tough. And I it's can, tough. I, and I'll admit it. I'll be the first to admit it as a as a Calvinist. This is not something that you just you know dandy about and no. pretend is easy for people to understand because it's not. I don't think. Uh, I don't think that somebody can just accidentally trip and fall into being a Calvinist. Um, my my wife withstanding, but. <laughs> <laughs> You trip her? No, I didn't. See, that's the funny thing is that is that she actually had uh, Sunday school teachers that were Reformed Baptist, and so that just kind of sunk in, and she's just kind of always believed that, and she never had like words for it. But at, at some point, like people can, uh, and actually, I remember talking to family members about uh, the fact that uh, I was I was leaning Reformed, and they're like, "Well, you mm. know." And my sister works for an evangelist. And when I was talking to her about it, she's like, well, you know, you don't, you don't. And she, she works for an evangelist. She's like, why? You probably don't think that what I do is important then, do you? If you think that mm. God chooses everyone, it's like, well, no, it's, and, and you know, she was coming like, I don't, I don't want to come across like she was, she was a jerk about it. She was not. And she was just like, uh, <laughs> she was, she, she was genuinely you know. concerned. It's just like, no, it, it's the fact that, we now have we have weight behind like we we understand yeah. like it's not like the pressure is taken off of us exactly when when we evangelize because we understand that it's it's all up to god and that doesn't that doesn't um that doesn't make us we can't just go out there and talk like i'm talking like right now and then people are like oh yeah wow that's great no you still have to uh <laughs> Be coherent. <laughs> this is why Cogent. we call this. This is why we call this late night theology because it's eleven where I am right now, and this is a part. This is, this is about the part of the podcast where I get a little bit. Aaron's is brought to you by. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? Who are you? What's going on? But it it actually brings like a a kind of uh, a, a to use a Puritan term a, a tincture. Ooh. To our evangelism, Ooh. yeah, it, it balances it out. Um, I remember reading about Charles Finney and the nineteenth uh, century revivalists, and, and their concern was, you know, nothing. The only thing holding people back from God is their own will, and if we just push their will hard enough, we we could win them all mm. to God. And 
I remember reading that and, and at the time reading it kind of on the surface going, man, that's just kind of bad theology. But thinking, looking back on it and knowing evangelists in that vein, I'm like, how much pressure and, you know, are you under on a day to day basis? And how prideful do you get when you think that you've done all of this? Right. There, there's some issues here and I'm not calling out all evangelists because I know a lot of them do really good work and truly love God and are humble and all the rest. But to me, the, there's still questions here that should be asked. It's almost like a, there, there's almost like a, an emotional arm bar into the kingdom, which, yeah. and, and to my shame, like I, I, have, I've done this to, to one of my friends before where I, it was like an emotional thing. It was like a, mm. okay, do this. All right. Say the sinner's prayer. You, you know, you're going to be saved. It's going to be great. And, you know, and I brought him to youth yeah. group a few times and then nothing. nothing. It, and like, so there's this, there's a, a focus on getting a first reaction and everybody gets really excited and you get really hyped and then pff, nothing. So yeah. In, so this doesn't make, <clears throat> it, it's, it brings a realism to evangelism. Where we we put the we put the focus back on God where it belongs, and we allow His Spirit to work through that because we know that whoever His sheep are called you know are called by Him, they know His voice, and if mm. they if if we are truly speaking the gospel, they are going to understand, hear that, and respond, and that is completely out of our hands, and that is a beautiful thing. I'm glad it's out of my hand. I am too. Jeez. <laughs> I, I hear how much editing it. I do on this podcast. I, <laughs> you know, I You I want evidence s- of total depravity, people. <laughs> you just go look at the blooper reel. You'll see some depravity. No, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I I and we're speaking for people from from the perspective, excuse me, of folks that have gone from an Arminian position both of us very strongly in the Armenian camp to now a reform position. So we get it. I, I remember thinking, how is it fi- when I, when I first heard this doctrine, like fully explained, I remember one of my first thoughts was how is this fair? Hmm. What if I think I'm a Christian, but Jesus didn't really die for me? Why happens to me? Do I, am I just unlucky? Did I just not win the cosmic lottery ticket and tough luck kid? Um, it was tough for me. I will say, I think that attitude was more of a cultural thing again, right. where we're very interested. You know, we're speaking as Americans here, uh, for those of you who are listening. Um, we, we're all about fairness and equity and equality and, and include everybody and all the rest that that's the big thing, even more so now than even a year ago. Um, this idea that, there's an exclusion thing going on here with the atonement. This idea that maybe somebody would want God, but God doesn't want that. That, that just drives us nuts. First of all, second of all, I don't think that would happen, but that's a common sentiment that I've heard Mm. before. Um, And then within the church, you know, this isn't just a cultural thing. Like at large, the church tradition I grew up in, had certain ways of thinking and going about things where if you caught emphysema, tough luck kid. 
<laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you don't need that long. The, the church tradition I grew up in also talked and, and approached scripture in a way where this was impossible. You, you mentioned evangelization and, and your sister. Um, that's a common idea. I have heard that time and time again, that this doctrine, limited atonement, completely undermines evangelism. Why do you need to do it? Well, we'll look at that in, in part two. But that's a real, real concern that people have. And I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think a lot of the popular reform stuff really does a good job of answering this. Hmm. You have to go a little bit deeper to really dig into it. And honestly, you have to back up a few doctrinal steps to get it. Um if you dive in on this doctrine and try to understand reformed theology starting here, it's, it's not, you, you're going to get lost. True. It's not going to happen. Um, and I think what often happens and, and people rightly or wrongly point this out, reformed people get a little arrogant. No, hey, not I, I know that that doesn't, nobody stop. ever has, there's, there's never, ever, no. ever been some sort of caricature of an arrogant Calvinist. That never happens. <laughs> we are humble, humble no. people that never go off on tangents as soon as we accept the doctrines of grace. And yeah, I. It, it's bad. I've been, I've been crushed by this. I And I was trying to figure it out in, in good humor. And I've read things where I'm like, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> that can't be what this position is. That's not right. And the the problem with the arrogant Calvinist is that it's inherently a contradiction. Like in uh, yeah. if uh, a very good book on this is um Humble Calvinism by J.A. Metters is a really good resource on yeah. this because the the arrogant Calvinist uh, which you know obviously just kind of digs into reformed uh the 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 arrogant reformed person is in and of themselves, a contradiction. Because if you believe that God chose you through nothing you have done, but only by his sheer goodwill, that does not mean you are in elite company. That means that there is a God that loves you despite you being a complete and utter disaster. That right. should not make you arrogant. That should make you humble. But on on the flip side, that shouldn't necessarily crush you. That you should be able to no. see the fact that God loves you. God gave Himself for you. God loved you before the world began. It says yeah. in Ephesians, but we were predestined before creation in the eternity of the past. That is that's huge. That should not crush you into being like, oh, I'm so... The, you are the object, Christian. You are the object of God's love, the creator of the universe. You are the object of his love. And that's incredible because you don't deserve it. That should humble you to keep you from being arrogant and uplift you to keep you from being crushed. Yeah. It doesn't always work out that way. Uh, and it's sad. It's, it's real sad. And I, and think, I think honestly, like, I think it takes time. I think it takes yeah. time to Absolutely. You, you will you, uh, and you'll find that most new Calvinists, uh, you know, they they go through uh, what is what is humorously called the cage stage um, mm. 
because John never went through a cage stage period in his team. Oh years. no, never. No. Oh my word! If you have, uh, we, I, I think we've, we've probably told a few uh, in, in past episodes, but uh, all I'm going to say is that a cage stage Calvinist 16 year old is like a, a a wolf in a chicken coop. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's messy. Pretty. It's not pretty. It's real bad. <laughs> real bad but i think there's i think there is a balancing there there is a a kind of attunement period where people are either they're just like they go off on their high horse or they just kind of crawl in the dust and they're just like oh woe is me a sinner yeah yeah and it shouldn't do either and what it really shouldn't do and i'm talking really to to uh my armenian brothers and sisters here don't let this be the reason you don't look further or research or do your homework. I, and again, even if you don't end up becoming a Calvinist, it's fine, but you should do your homework on this. You should look into it. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the better reform folks and don't let the arrogant ones throw you off because it's just not, they're not worth being waylaid because of that. Yeah, don't don't let Aaron's arrogance overcome my humble and peaceable <laughs> demeanor. <laughs> uh, oh, so we and we can also see that this comes through in um, we can accuse God of evil. I think that's a common. Atonement. That's a common. Uh, and thing, and you right? know what? Uh, I get it. I I get it. Uh, and again, it, it takes a lot of context. And it, and I think it's just because we immediately, it's uh, like you were mentioning, it's kind of our culture that people who are not inclusive tend to be evil. We said this back at the, at, in the first part of the series when we did total depravity, there's a reason total depravity comes first. Hmm. The doctrine of sin comes first in all this because Everything flows out of that. Your understanding of God's character and man's sin will determine your entire view of salvation and how it works, um, consciously or not. So you might be an Arminian who is very firm about you know um, unlimited atonement, however however that gets phrased, and you might not have thought a lot about God's character and sin. But you have, whether you realize it or not. Again, you have to go back to that, and we have to deal with that issue. Now, we're not going to deal with this, this, uh, you know, problem of evil thing probably for a couple shows. Hmm. Hopefully, a lot of shows because it's tough. <laughs> it's real tough. But but I would say this: a lot of good Christians have held to this position and not attributed evil directly to God. And I think that should at least make you pause and go, wait a minute. I might not be understanding something here. There, There's there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of complicated stuff here. Um, just straight out of scripture that, that I should probably figure out. Like that whole God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. But... God is also hardening it. Mm. He, he's pushing him deeper and deeper and deeper, not to an end of salvation, but ultimately to his doom. Look, that's not a Reformed text. That's not an Arminian text. That's just a 
part of scripture. Mm. We have to deal with this. This idea that God is holy, pure, and just, and righteous, and yet we see this. This is a much bigger issue. It should not be a cop-out to say, oh, this is just wrong. Right. This can't be right because this is what it looks like. It's just not that simple. A complicated notion, just because it's complicated, does not mean it's not true. It just means that it's complicated. And, yeah. like, you cannot... Uh, scripture needs careful handling. There are some things right. that are immediately uh, immediately shown. And then there's some that need more context and need more nuance. I mean, if we just look at, uh, there's a verse in Isaiah where it says that God creates evil. And right. if we look at that by itself, and if we atomize that scripture, we're just like, well, God makes evil. So, you know, he's literally just like a giant megalomaniac uh, puppet master. That makes mm. evil and good, and he's basically just a giant yin-yang, and we are right. all in his thrall. Why bother? Right. You got to be careful. There's tough stuff in there. The Bible was not written specifically for middle-class American evangelicals. Right. As, sho as shocking as that is, I know. Let's listen, just bear with us for a minute here. You may or may not have been the direct recipients of scripture. Just throwing and that out there. <laughs> I, I think that that's probably going to need to be like a, a full episode at some point. I think we're going to have oh, to go we over should. that. We absolutely That'll be should. Really that's way beyond the scope of this this particular episode. But I I think I I think I can make the promise in good faith that we're going to we're going to get to that. So and, and one other different. one other thing we we see is that uh, uh, the other uh, objection we see is that Christ wasn't able to die just for a, like a specific few. His death has to be for everyone. Like, yeah, this is real common in, in church traditions, especially the more radical Armenian traditions. Um, hmm. I. I Go go ahead. I, I, I was just going to say we have a quote from from like Dave Hunt in the in the book debating Calvinism. Dave Hunt says uh, on the on the Arminian side, he says it was not the sins of the elect, but sin itself for which Christ paid the full penalty. It's a great notion. Just on the surface, it, it, it is a wonderful, wonderful idea. But it's not true. I, I don't think that's what scripture says. At least not the way he, at least not the way he means it. Exactly. Cause if, if we look at this again, it's, it, this is kind of a soft universalism because if sin yeah. itself is paid for, then all of us are in the clear. If sin is completely defeated, is completely erased, is completely paid for. Nobody has to worry about anything and we are all fine, which again is a really really nice thought it's uh, you know the the that gif of um of keenan um keenan thompson from snl the, mm. <laughs> that's really nice it's wrong yes but nice yes oh yeah i i think this position and this is true of arminianism as a whole but but it once you start asking two three questions more problems are made by going down the Arminian road, I think, than are solved. Mm. So immediately I look at I look at this quote and I go, okay, Mr. Hunt, that's fine. That's great. I love I love the idea. Why 
is anyone condemned then? Hmm. And there's a whole reasoning behind it that we're going to look at uh, next time. But just on the surface, there there can't be. Yeah. And I mean, and to on be the fair, you know, where we are, you know, where we're atomizing his arguments, you know, into this sure. into this one quote. And it's, you know, and, you know, to be fair, but it, it it's still I feel like it's a good highlight. Yeah. Of a common Ar- Arminian um, um, thought. And um, and at the end of the day, like these reactions, like we can't, uh, I'm, I don't want to say that like they're, they're not fair. They're, they're not, they're, they're not fair. They're not they're unfair. Not. They're, they're more, more or not. less, they are fair. <laughs> like these are, these are common knee jerk gut reactions. And I feel like yes. a, a lot of times, I'm not saying for everyone. But a lot of times we see people don't go a whole lot further than these knee jerk reactions and yeah. just to, to kind of dig into it. I mean, what they do show, I mean, on the surface anyway, is that it's not quite as straightforward as some of the other doctrines. When, when we look at limited atonement right. versus uh, total depravity or, or unconditional election, um, those are those are usually like, oh, yeah, I can get behind that. But limited atonement needs to be, it needs to be worked through. And I think this is where the scriptural concept of, of working through things together and, and digging into scripture, pulling it apart, putting it back together and seeing what, what is really going on here. I think that's, it's a really helpful concept. Absolutely. Uh, Look, there's passages on both sides. And I think as soon as you see that with, with the theological debate, it should make you stop. It should slow you down. I think God does, does this on purpose actually to make us stop and slow down and prayerfully think it through, hmm. you know, to rely on him and his spirit. Um, it's too easy for us to just to jump to conclusions and move on. I don't think that was his intent in giving us scripture. No. Um, and it's certainly not his intent, and this goes to people on both sides, to use these particular doctrines as a cudgel. I have been beat half to death, figuratively, by Arminians who, as soon as they learned I was a Calvinist, just start yelling John 3.16 at me. And there was nothing else. That, that was it. Right. Well, John 3.16 is just true. And there was no discussion. There was, there was nothing. On the other hand, um, I have seen and unfortunately been the uh, the instigator of using reformed theology as a cudgel. So no, you're just an idiot. You you just you you should know this. It's Why like don't you know how the Bible works? You what moron. is wrong with you? Come on. And we've look. I've I've also been on the receiving end of that from the reformed side, and I sit there and go, this is weird. You're you're doing the exact opposite of the doctrine you're trying to. Exactly. Ooh, and, I don't and this get it. this goes back to the fact that this should not make people arrogant. The the no. the concept of limited atonement should not and especially you know marrying that with unconditional election that should not make us arrogant. That should make us humble. That should make us think doxologically. Like that sh- this should point this should make all of our uh, you know all of our focus point towards God in worship and say, you, the things you do, Lord, who else does these things? Yeah. You know, we don't find this 
we don't find this grace in Buddhism. We don't find this in Islam. No. We don't find this in Hinduism. We find this in you alone. And that's that that should be our posture. But instead, what we do is we take our knowledge of scripture which in many cases is truly born out of a love of God. But then we take that and we put our brothers and sisters in Christ in a, a freaking headlock and we start noogieing them until, you know, they, 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 yeah. uh, they say uncle, you know, and for whatever reason, nobody wants to be a Calvinist. I don't get it. <laughs> wow. And Who I doesn't think, enjoy it? honestly, tricky. I think it comes down to, um, when when Jesus talks about the man who has been forgiven much, uh, mm. in a lot of reform circles, we are the dude that goes out and says, you know, you owe me 10 bucks. Your theology is flawed. <laughs> and we yeah. throw them we throw them in our own oh, prisons and we ignore them and we think less of them. And that's wrong. That is that is flat out wrong. And, uh, and it happens on the Arminian side too. Hmm. Um, I, I, I attended a, a Pentecostal undergraduate college and uh, I was one of three reform people on campus. Uh, one other student and a professor. And we, we were, you ever get the feeling like you're, you're in a zoo or, or a circus act, like a, you know, <laughs> sideshow attraction. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, and this is for both sides too. I, I don't think it's on purpose. Going all the way back to the history, we don't do a good job of talking to each other. No. Um, by and large. And it's sort of sad because I think, again, to reiterate, there, there's some common ground here. There's some common concerns in the very least. Mm. And I don't think we want to think about that or, or we, we don't think about that as much. Um, so as a reminder, let let me just say these passages and these concerns, look, if you're Arminian, just know this does not, these arguments against reformed theology, you know, what we read from the remonstrance and those passages that we read that doesn't de de facto disprove reformed theology. Hmm. There are good reformed theologians that know about all of that and are still reformed. On the other side, reformed brothers and sisters, just because someone's an Arminian doesn't make them a heretic. Absolutely. All right? Please calm down. I mean, I've it's seen, okay. I, I, like, I've heard stories of, of people being put under church discipline for believing in the doctrines of grace. And I've also seen people who are literally not even giving our Arminian brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. And, and, and not, they, they look at theology and they don't look at the, the change that God has made in their lives. And in a lot of cases, I will, I will, I will gladly say that a a lot of my Armenian brothers and sisters know the Bible better than I do. I, you know, I, Uh, I, I have come to, no, I have come to, uh, the reformed, I've come to reformed theology through my own study and through my own study of the word and, and seeing that reformed theology is the best explanation that we have mm. for scripture. It doesn't, that doesn't mean I know the Bible. Well, 
I, uh, you know, yeah. does that make sense? Like, I, I feel no, like I I'm not it. trying to like necessarily discredit myself here, but at the same time, I can't just automatically think, well, you don't know anything because you're an Arminian. And I honestly, there's still, <laughs> there's still kind of a knee jerk reaction for that in the back of my head. Sometimes it's just like, ugh, Arminians, you know, but yeah. you know, most of the time they know so much more than me. And what I should be trying to do is like we talked about in our other episode is learning from theology. I disagree with right. and trying to, yeah. you know, work that out. Yeah. I think I, one of my best teachers in grace was actually an Arminian thinking back on it. He's a professor I had and um, he was not reformed, but I think he understood grace better than a lot of the people in the church I was attending who had grown up in, in that reformed church. Mm. He, he understood it because he had experienced it. He had a living walk with Jesus that made it clear to him. And even though theologically, I think he, he was misunderstanding what, what was occurring. I, I think he understood grace better. Absolutely. And I learned a lot from him and his stories and, and his testimony, because I'm like, that's, that's incredible. Mm. You, you have experienced grace in a way that people who profess to understand it have never experienced it. Absolutely. And that, that is quite something. Hmm. And I, I think at the end of the day, when we uh, like uh, to, to kind of sum up this, this first part, we Hmm. have a a whole nother part coming where we go through uh, a a lot more of this because again oh, yeah. this is a very difficult topic it's a very nuanced and complicated topic but uh, when we look at this the 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 thought of limited atonement that god chose before creation before time started his sheep this should mm. not make us arrogant this should not make us boastful it should make us the most prolific evangelists. We should yeah. see the glory of God in it. We should see his goodness in it. And we should be able to, to see that there is, there is something praiseworthy in this. I, I, I shouldn't say something. The entire plan of God is praiseworthy and mm-hmm. worthy of, of our adoration. And it's hard to do that. Limited atonement is difficult. Yes. On on top, and this is on top of of being nuanced and complicated. It is difficult. It's it, when you grasp it, it pushes back on you. And this, honestly, I think this is the the reason that I came to to accept it as true. Is because it pushed back so much on my sensibilities that hmm. all I could say was, "This is something divine." This is something divine that's pushing back on me right now. This also happened when his wife pushed back against him to clean out the dishwasher. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I I hope that uh, we've we've kind of covered this concept. I hope that we haven't gone on too many rabbit trails, um, as we are want to do, which is why we're having two parts so we can have all the rabbit trails Absolutely. we want. So I hope you'll join us for our our second parts. John, do you have any any parting thoughts for this episode? I was just going to say, uh, not necessarily for this episode, but 
for next episode, we'll be digging a little bit deeper into um, the objections to limited atonement. Um, we'll be looking at the passages for it as well. So we went over some of the big passages against it tonight. Um, next time we'll be going over the contrary passages. And um, if you're reformed, definitely tune in. If you're not reformed, absolutely turn in because I hope what it will do is spark some thought, spark some questions, maybe help you sort through some things you've been thinking about or, or get you thinking about. So definitely stay tuned. Absolutely. So this has been Late Night Theology. And for Jonathan, I'm Aaron. Thank you very much for listening and God bless. For me, it was it was un, it was unlimited elect uh, un, un, unlimited election. <laughs> wow, unlimited, unlimited election, <laughs> unlimited election with every Ooh. with uh, with every entree purchase, twenty five percent off. <laughs> I want I want you know what I want I want a, a a album of Metallica covers <laughs> quoted by William Shatner. Why don't you go fart in an elevator and see how that goes over too? <laughs> it's gonna be about it's the gonna same. Be about, the, about the same popular popularity. <laughs> Google help! Google help, please. When we're not burning um, incense to our shrines of John Calvin, that is. Uh, I think my wife put oregano in it. <laughs> Honey, are you smoking the incense again? <laughs> are you trying to stay on through that John Calvin again? No. <laughs> That's a lie. It's true. I found the institutes on your... D- <laughs> I found the institute. What is this institute to the Christian religion? Uh, no, that's a simulation. I, I legit, I legit can't even think of it. But it is the Armenian thought thingy. But that does sound Are like you hanging mom. out with Calvinists again? <laughs> no, Ma! They're just friends! Why do you have. Why do you. Why do you have this pamphlet? It's not a pamphlet, Mom! It's like 6,000 pages! <laughs> Don't you talk back to me! Are you a Calvinist? Are you a Calvinist? Like your Uncle Louie! <laughs> Uncle Louie, I remember him. <laughs> I was so fond of him. When he went and married that Presbyterian. Cut oh, you Lord. Presbyterian! <laughs>